evening, and welcome to another episode of the Perceptive Podcast, where we examine the art and design of games. I am still Josh Placer, and we got a great cast for you tonight. We're going to be talking to the CEO and lead designer from Storytellers Entertainment. They are in the process of working on the game Imperium Omni, which is poised to go on to Kickstarter probably at the time of this podcast going up, either already there or coming real soon. And they are trying to make a retro-style RPG for mobile devices. So, please welcome to the cast tonight, Matt Thomas. Hi, everybody. Hi, Matt. It's great to have you on. And for people listening right now, Matt is having some trouble with his voice right now. That's why it's sounding uh, like that. And I was just saying before we started, Matt, I hope things uh, get better for you. Yeah, actually, again, it's oddly enough, this is a great improvement. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things that's just, you know, rare, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, it's uh, getting better and better every day. So it's, uh, but it's just like a teeny bit better every day. Uh, yeah. And like for myself, like I do a lot of these uh, podcasts where they're live or recorded and it just shreds my voice for a while. For people who listen to me when I do like live stuff, there's always like a 20% chance that all of a sudden while I'm talking, my voice just goes dead. Like, I'll be sure, in a conversation, sure. and I'm like, and then, and like, everyone just like, and then like five people in chat tell me, Josh, you need to take some water now. Stop talking and <laughs> take a sip. Well, I have, I have my lemon mint Ricola next to me and some water in case my voice does uh, uh, wear a bit, but uh, really it, it seems to be okay. So, I mean, it doesn't Good. seem to hurt. Good to hear. So we certainly have a lot to talk about. And for people listening to us right now, we are recording this in the second week of December. So there is still some time left before the Kickstarter, and we can certainly discuss what you guys have been up to. So to get things started for the cast mats, and this is your first time on, could you talk a little bit about your background when it comes to the game industry? Sure, absolutely. Well, um... I'm not just a game designer. I'm, uh, I wear many hats, um, but, uh, I'm more of a renaissance guy. So I started gaming literally when gaming started, um, by at college, I played Zork <laughs> on the server there, which technically it was hidden because of course you're not really supposed to have Zork, the text based original game. Uh, but of course the, you know, the, the, the professors allowed it. Um, and I've played role-playing games especially. I mean, I've played all kinds of games, but role-playing games especially ever since they were born. So I was in on the original, uh, you know, uh, all the uh, 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 Bard's Tales and uh, all the Westwood Studios stuff. Uh, everything from the beginning all the way up to, you know, Dragon Age and The Witcher and Elder Scrolls, etc. So, in terms of gameplay, I've also always been a designer. I coded my first video game when I was 16 years old, and it uh, broke the Apple computer I was using. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, it, it wouldn't. It stopped letting me enter additional code, even though technically memory 
was not full, and I even brought it down. At the time, there were even still sort of uh, Apple geniuses, and uh, even they couldn't figure it out. <laughs> so uh, I have written uh, novels since I was age 12. My first novel was kind of like Conan, and it was written at age 12, and my mother, uh, as a Christmas present, actually typed it for me, and I did submit it to all the big publishers. It was not published, but still. Um, uh, so I've written uh, a novel about every two years since then. So I am the author of Imperium Omni. And as far as Omni and Omni, <laughs> I'm, I'm not positive, actually, of the Latin. And that's where that is. That's Latin for to rule all. Mm-hmm. I'm also, uh, a, I was a st- uh, speaker at the Game Design Conference in San Francisco in uh, 2012. And uh, I have worked on and coded uh, several other uh, games, mostly in the, um, you know, the social casual space. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I have a lot of background there, but um, role-playing games are my passion and they're where the, you know, where my, my core comes from. So I have been both writing mentally the story of Imperium Omni since... Well, for probably 25 years, and concurrently to writing the story, I've been designing the game. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a long path, and here it effectively finally is. So, I published the novel uh, in 2016, and it's available on Amazon now. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's uh, you know it, the, that's that's where my background comes from. Great. And it's always interesting when I talk to developers who have been around the industry for so long. We did a cast during the summer with Bill Fisher, who's currently heading up the Intellivision revival. And oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's always crazy to like listen and talk to people who have been around for so long. Because I know a lot of my audience, especially for people who watch me on YouTube, they may have started playing video games five to ten years ago at most. And sure. it, they don't. And it's always interesting to like just see just how much things have changed over the last thirty years. I mean, I started playing games back in nineteen eighty eight, and I get called old man a lot because I say that. Sure, sure. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, I've effectively I have a similar uh, background. I uh, started college and um, played whatever the mid eighties also, <laughs> and so yeah, I was playing. Uh, uh, Zork <laughs> right about back then um, so yeah and as, as for like in television that, that was uh, of the consoles that were available back then uh, the Intellivision was the best one by far and mm-hmm. so that yeah that was I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad it's coming back mm-hmm. now with uh, Storytellers Entertainment when did you found the studio well the studio has been around uh, we only incorporated this year, but the studio itself has been around for probably the last four years or so, and we've done various different projects. Um, but this has always been kind of the core project that we've been leading to. Okay. And with the actual novel, Imperium Omni, like how long, you say you got that published in 2016. How long were you writing it for? That took about... I actually wrote the 
the 300 page first draft in only about six months. The final version is 650 pages. And so that was tuned over about, about the next year and a half. So it took about, about two years. Right now I'm about 200 pages into the next book, which is, um, so just like Lord of the Rings was a trilogy, right? Um, this is a quadrilogy. So it's a single story mm-hmm. told in four different books. And so each of the books has a subtitle on it. And the subtitle, and this one is Captain's Edition. The next one is the uh, General's Edition. The next one after that is the King and Queen's Edition. The next one is the Emperor Empress Edition. Mm. So each of those subtitles has a meaning for the game. Each of the books can be read just as a, you know, just as a fantasy novel, just like Game of Thrones. It's not, it's not particularly gamey, if you will. It's written for reg- any regular reader. But there are some special notes in the book that are, um, they're just annotated with a, uh, an omega symbol, like an upside down horseshoe. Um, and those gamers can go to the back to an appendix to read stuff that's very specifically about the game. But uh, so anyway, these, the reason they have these subtitles is that in the game terms, and in fact, as in the novels themselves, the lead character or you, the player, achieves that rank as that story, or that particular story ends. So at the end of the first the book, mm-hmm. sure enough, you are promoted to captain. At the end of the second book, you know, you'll, you'll be done, quote unquote, when in the game and in the book, when you're promoted to general. And obviously, so there's a king and a queens and an emperor and empress. So that's another unique part of the, both the game and the story is that you begin as a player and as the lead character in the book as, you know, just a lowly you start out as a non, you know, just a private, of course. But I mean, that part isn't even isn't in the book. You sort of actually begin as a as an entry level sergeant, but mm-hmm. you progress all the way over these series of this quadrilogy and about thirty years of game time. Mm-hmm. To your final goal is to actually unseat the current empress of the world. And she's not actually your enemy. You work for her basically the whole time um, in a sad effect. But um, in the end, there's, you know, will be a logical conclusion to how you would uh, step into her throne. All right. Now, when it comes to uh, this kind of idea of your, you have the you have the novel, and that's being translated into a video game. I guess a question for you, Matt, with regards to the actual game itself, did the game kind of come about like at the same time you were developing the novel, or did it kind of like was it like inspired after you finished like the first novel? They were really built the same at the same time. As I was writing the novel. I was also envisioning the game. And it's why when you read the novel, even though the novel is written for regular people, mm-hmm. even if I pulled out, if you removed all those Omega symbols, gamers would still get it because there are, there are places throughout it where 
you see the gaming aspect of it that you wouldn't normally see in a in a standard fantasy novel you know so like we'll talk about missions mm-hmm. and sure i mean that happens in other you know in the lord of the rings there you know mm-hmm. there was a individual mission of of getting to rivendell say um and then there's you know the individual mission of of uh, beating the trolls mm-hmm. so but they didn't refer to it that way right those were just mm-hmm. integral parts of the story so in this you'll actually see some of the gaming terminology in use uh as, but done as if it is just again just you know instead of just saying oh let's go kill those trolls uh you might hear so our mission is today to go kill those trolls so um yeah, they were literally built hand in hand. Hmm. Interesting. I guess um, I, this was probably a good time before we talk more about how the novel and the game were connected. Let's talk a little bit more about the general gameplay of Imperium Omni. So, uh, from a design perspective, what exactly is the game going to be about? Well, uh, as you mentioned, I think at the beginning, this is a real um, uh, definitive attempt. To re readdress the whole very nature of retro role playing games, and even when I say retro, it really just means the where did this the source. So when when asked what's the game's kind of style, <laughs> the first thing I refer to is that this is as much as it could be like the actual pen and paper Dungeons and Dragons game, <laughs> where the maps. And any images and whatnot, and the you know whatever kind of voice acting your your game master would uh, give you, your dungeon master, that's all to accentuate your imagination. So that's one thing. Another thing um, that uh, some of your newer listeners may not be familiar with is the Avalon, the old Avalon Hill mm-hmm. fantasy board games. They were very um, they were complex and deep. And they had uh, an enormous amount of, of uh, you know, the obviously very map-based in their board gameness, but they had a lot of elements that would link them together. In terms of video games, uh, there's nothing obviously quite like it, but um, uh, something that I can say is at least you know in the in the area would be Baldur's Gate mm-hmm. or Pillars of Eternity, but without the isometric view. So it's, it takes that idea of uh, that, you know, I, while I love, personally, I'd love third person, pre- preferable to me that to a first person, um, you know, full 3D worlds mm-hmm. uh, that are expansive and everything. They're fabulous, but they can also be uh, somewhat annoying because they're generally, they can be so big and yet there's functionally mm-hmm. other than looking at a lot of the pretty stuff you're really kind of just wandering around which i mean again full credit to the artists and the game designers and as i said i, I love to play them i can't you know can't deny that because i do it uh, on myself but there is something to those and yet there's something to this idea of when you really got down to a pen and paper Dungeons and Dragons game or to an Avalon Hill, you know, fantasy board game. 
mm-hmm. you had a path that it wasn't that you you didn't have choices and you you know but you had you know there was a scope mm-hmm. to what you were doing and you could get very involved in that scope and so that's what we're bringing back we're bringing the back the idea that sort of the video game is your dungeon master mm-hmm. the video game lets you play in the old style but it it takes the place of your dungeon master Mm-hmm. And the RPG genre, when it comes to the game industry, is definitely one of the more fascinating ones to just watch its growth. I'm sure, as you're aware of, just how much things have really changed over the last two decades. You mentioned, of course, the grand open world style, which, of course, fans listening to us, they probably immediately tuned to Fallout or the Elder Scrolls franchise, or even sure. something like the recent Witcher 3. And sure. Like, for myself, and and fans know what I'm about to say, those games have just never managed to hook me for the very same reason you just said there, Matt, that there's such a very wide space, but a lot of that doesn't really impact what you're doing. It's just you wandering around, where the interesting stuff is, you know, few and far between. Absolutely. Now, it is. It's one of the the downsides of that. I very much understand why they mm-hmm. especially why somebody you know and i think it was probably uh like ultima who first kind of said gosh you know if we could just have an open world um people could go wherever they wanted to and then just you know stuff would happen and so the idea was well that would be a little bit more like reality right that mm-hmm. um you know you you can do anything you want to and there are issues of value to that but it comes at that sacrifice that Mm -hmm. just like any real world well if your real world is say functionally just whatever 3,000 miles wide well you just can't have 100% interesting things (laughs) in all 3,000 of those miles so tons of it is just beautiful landscape um, and then you you know you find the occasional ruin or whatever, but that's the thing is that you when you get into those ruins and whatever, you're suddenly excited again, because now you do have effectively like a mini quest, you have a mission, you have something to do, you oh I stumbled across this ruin, gosh now I get to clear it out, and if it's one of the really you know special tier ones, it has its own story, you know mm-hmm. where whatever the ancient lich uh, conquered this particular shrine and blah 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 and so you know you end up moving through it like an old style dungeons and dragons episode like a module Mm -hmm. until you get to the big boss at the end and whatever and that's you know people that's why you play those games but then once you're done you got to go out and wander the whole world again (laughs) so um I had the idea from the very beginning uh, that there's this thing basically called the hero's perception. That one of the differences between the average peasant or whatever, just the, you know, a farmer working the land and an adventurer, is you develop essentially a sense. It's like basically a sixth sense of what is important what is interesting because 
you, you, you have to develop that sense. You know, you can't think that every tree <laughs> is the most fascinating thing in the world. But you do need to think that particular tree, there's something to that. Oh, wait a minute. I think I see it. It's base. Oh, hey, look, wait a minute. There's an ancient gravestone here. Oh, and when I move the leaves out of the way, I can press this on ah, the stone lifts up. And ah, now, see, an adventurer has that sense to find that stone, whereas the farmer just would have passed it by, even if they'd noticed it was a gravestone. They just would have. So from the very beginning, I had this idea that, that you can take that vast empty space and make it interesting because you effectively tell the player you have an inherent sense of what is and is not interesting and crucial in your gameplay. Interesting. And I gotta ask this of you, Matt. In terms of RPG design, there's, of course, the other side of the coin when it comes to the JRPG genre. So, I gotta know, do you play any JRPGs or have any thoughts on that kind of design? Well, I've played... I basically played, I mean, almost everything. Um... I've played, um, uh, basically, I've played um, the, uh, you know, like League of Legends. I've played, um, uh, played uh, of course, like I've mentioned, uh, the, um, the, sorry, Dragon Age and Witcher mm -hmm. and all of that. And the Japanese ones, I mean, I, I like them because they have, They've always had great stories. That's one thing that has been uh, essentially, um, you know, uh, Final Fantasy and that sort of thing have had mm -hmm. these these aspects that are basically they're more story than to me they are, at least in my experience, sort of real classic role playing. Mm -hmm. And I, that comes to where, you know, what is the difference between um, a role-playing game and an adventure game. Mm -hmm. And the, like, do you remember uh, King's Quest? Yes. Okay. So King's Quest is an adventure game. Now, you can call it a role-playing game because you do select a single character, you know, and, you, and the character sort of improves and go as they go on. But more or less, it's an adventure game. And what an adventure game is, is it's a, a pretty direct, interactive novel, which I do also love. Because, again, that's kind of, that's who I am, really, right? Novelist who wants interaction. But a role-playing game, you can genuinely feel like you can take the place of the character, where, in game terms, you can physically improve the character of course but you're also customizing it mm -hmm. and by customizing it you're customizing you yep. so that to me is the big difference between them that there's there's this aspect of of this customization where you become much more personalized into the character mm -hmm. yep and i think that's a really good point there and like for myself, like I've always had this very 
like on off again kind of approach when it comes to RPGs. I grew up playing the JRPG side, Final Fantasy, Dragon Warrior, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Then I kind of dabbled in the CRPG side. This was like mid to late nineties. That's when I got into Fallout, Baldur's Gate, and the like. And then I kind of went back to JRPG design. And as you said, it really does feel like two sides of the same coin there. Because a lot of the JRPGs, you're playing as a character. You're playing as somebody else, essentially. It's never supposed to be you. You are a cloud from Final Fantasy or even a Geralt. You're playing as this character. Sure. Sure. And the customization, I think, is a very big part about that. I don't know if you've heard of this franchise before, Matt, but have you ever played uh, Etrian Odyssey by any chance? No, I have actually heard of that, but no, I haven't played it. All right. Well, uh, what that was was essentially a uh, JRPG attempt at mirroring the old school Wizardry series. So, Yeah, yeah, sure. I and, loved Wizardry. And that was like my first real introduction, and I started to really get into that one by the very same version of what you said. It's about you building a party up. You are able to create this group of people however you see fit. You divine their skills however you see. And then it's just a matter of, did I make, did my plan work? Can this group of four or five people clear the dungeon? And it's very story light, but it's more mechanically deep. And I think to me, that's where I see like a lot of the old school pen paper, but I'm sure you can correct me if I'm wrong, that it's about you building this party up, and while the story is there, there is a dungeon, there is a bad guy, again, it's more about the intimacy between the player and the in-game character. I would think that I would say that you're absolutely correct. And that's where Imperium Omni looks to become different. Mm-hmm. It- looks to become the thing that we've basically just described kind of doesn't exist. So, as you said, I loved wizardry, but you, you were very correct. It was and it was about the 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 statistics. Mm-hmm. It was very much about, you know, oh gosh, when I use this tool, it uh, this sword, it gives me this, but if I use it in combination with this, it does this. And much less relevant was, you know, why you were going to, you know, do whatever it was you were going to do. Um, So there was the value of that, but the fact that the story wasn't as deep as the JRPG stories, that to me was always a problem. Because again, I'm a storyteller. That's my inherent nature, is I tell stories. What I... I have always wanted is to combine those two things where you have the customization, where you have the ability to be statistically oriented, but that the story itself is so critical that that's why you're doing it. You're actually doing it because you want to participate at a deeper and deeper level in the story. So an Imperium Omni the, the, the characters in the book are not, they aren't going to be you when you're the player. Mm-hmm. You'll effectively play a, a new version or a different version of the lead in the book. But 
So the story from the lead in the book is that a hero and a heroine, um, Shadow, who's a half-elf, and Farah, who's a full-elf, they meet when they're comparatively young in their careers, but they encounter a group that is, they're an old, they're, they're even still not that old, but they're almost more infamous than they are famous. They're almost anti-heroes, and it's a group called the Changers. The reason they got that title is because wherever they went and whatever they did, effectively, they would chaotically alter the storyline. They would chaotically alter the landscape of the world, even. Mm-hmm. So these, this particular group did something so chaotic uh, just a few years before the book starts that they basically had to they disband because half the world wanted to kill them uh, and half the world wanted to praise them as heroes. And what they had done was through a very unpredictable and hilarious set of circumstances that someday I'll probably write as its own prequel. <laughs> they effectively gave uh, they the world was under assault by a force that seemed utterly foreign. And it was nearly unstoppable, this force. And it was a being named Ronos. And but he the, the being had made one thing clear that what he wanted was his amulet back. He had lost it when he had appeared right in this way in the world. And so, I mean, that's, you know, a basic, that's a more, uh, a fairly common RPG trope, if you will. Um, but what's different is the changers got the amulet and they gave it back to the guy. Now, so you can understand how they're not considered heroes in large parts of the world because they did something that seems to be the opposite of the classic, you know, fantasy character. The fantasy character is supposed to, you know, throw the ring into Mount Doom. That's, that's what's supposed mm-hmm. to happen. And if they're the corrupted person, you know, they keep it and then they become Sauron or whatever, um, you know, or the, the sword of Shannara, you know, you're supposed to retrieve it. You're supposed to use it. Um, but so these characters, they give it back. But what's amazing is it causes the war to end and it causes that being to retreat to his quiet corner of the world. And he's been silent ever since then. So that's why they're regarded both as the greatest of heroes because they ended the worst war the world had ever seen. But they did it through what can be described, you know, charitably as, uh, you know, something verging on absolute treason. So you're, you start the book with these characters that you meet this, this, you know, a couple of members of this infamous group and effectively you decide to join them because you begin to understand their nature. And that's why the story is compelling that the, the part that you, you keep customizing your character is because you feel a part, not just then of the group of this group of changers, 
you feel like just as they did once in the past, that you too could be part of that impact where even if it may be unpredictable, that you create the results that you want in the story and for the world. Hmm. And it's definitely very interesting as you describe that, Matt, regarding trying to have that sense of place or that sense of story with the old school CRPG design. And for people listening to us right now, to clarify Imperium Omni's like the general gameplay, I'm assuming that this is going to be turn-based, again, keeping with the retro style of CRPG design. There are parts of it that are. There are large parts of okay. it that are turn-based. And that's because it's a very much, again, like thinking of playing pen and paper Dungeon mm-hmm. Dragons or CRPG early ones, you know, like Wizardry, etc., um, it's very map based. So you'll be, you know, when you scroll your cursor around, um, you know, you're scrolling it around a map. And when you click on a particular place, it'll zoom and show you like kind of a, a big thumbnail of what that is and maybe and give you some information about it. And then if you travel to it, that'll bring you up then into a different map of the actual place itself. However, because it's all being done in Unreal 4, you will actually have traditional 3D interactions as well. Mm-hmm. So you'll be able to step into, like, the pure combat situations actually are handled in, in just like you're in The Witcher 3, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just like you're in Dragon Age or Elder Scrolls. So you actually step into a animated a fully 3d environment that's real time where and i when i say real time it's really prep it's more like that same cross between that you get in both uh, witcher and um and dragon age where you can actually pause mm-hmm. and issue orders and then resume okay. so but you can also just play you know you can go ahead and just play live 3d so yeah that's that's how that's how it will be a crossbreed of those two. Essentially, depending on the situation, you will be... And it's, and it's kind of like if you think back to actually, you know, if you play D&D, you have all the planning, and then you're, you're walking down the corridor and blah, blah, blah. But then when you come to a combat, the combat does come closer to real time, especially in the modern D20 uh, kind of universe, if you know anything about that, mm-hmm. where you know you 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 act in segments during a turn, so even you even have you know simultaneous action, but um, so the combat situations become more in Dungeons and Dragons like they're live in real time, and then when the combat stops, you're sort of back to if you can think about it, yeah, as a turn-based mode. Okay, and. In terms of the general gameplay, again, there's a lot we can go into, so I'm trying to avoid us like going to like the two and a half hour mark if we can. Sure. <laughs> but sure. in terms of like the as you said, Imperium Omni uh, the game is gonna kind of be like the companion to Imperium Omni the book. In terms Correct. of like the actual gameplay, like will like the player like I guess have 
uh, malleability in terms of the story? Like, is there, like, do you envision, like, this, like, over the course of the four books of the quadrilogy, this being, like, a fixed story of the player getting to the end and being uh, declared the Emperor Empress? Or will the game allow for some degree of changing things compared to the book? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, obviously the book, you know, the book is not a, a choose-your-own-story book. It's not one of those where, you know, you hit a point and it says, do you want to do A, B, or C? Um, no, so the book is just written in one way. Well, so one of the uh, interviews I had, they asked me, well, doesn't that mean that if the player reads the book, you know, they, they know the story? And I said, well, sure, it actually it does. I mean, there's no denying that if, you, if you're a player of the game and you read the book, you have effectively read a novelized walkthrough of the game. However, again, just as you were talking about, you can make changes and choices because the game is different than the book. I mean, the game you play, well, the game, I should say, the book, the, the two lead characters are Shadow and Pharah. In the game, you play a completely new you, and you will know Shadow and Pharah and all the other changers, mm -hmm. but you will be part of the choices that they make, and you will be the one that takes Shadow's place in the game. So you'll be the one that is continually moving up this this ladder i mean the other players with you your other party members they basically do also stay within your rank range at the beginning of their at the end of the first book in fact there are only four total changers in mm -hmm. the end of the first book that you participate with and so your party is four and all four of them are promoted to captain at the end of the first book. So they don't all, you know, so everybody can't end up being a king and a queen, an emperor and empress. Um, so sure, as you progress forward, that especially your story will begin to diverge from Shadow's story or from Pharaoh's story. Mm-hmm. All right, and then uh, here's one thing I'm curious about with regards to, again, both the book and the game, Matt. We, uh, for fans of Game Wisdom, we did a podcast, and this will be about maybe a year, year and a half ago, where we talked about the challenge of uh, going from one medium to another in terms of story. Again, everyone knows about video games being translated into books, or I'm sorry, into movies, or movies to games, and kind of the, ch the problems and some of the issues that go into that crossing over. With Imperium Omni, again, being both a book and a game, uh, did you run into any issues with trying to take your story from the novel and move over to the game, or even trying to think of game elements and how they would relate to the book itself, or to even future, or to like the other future books in the series? Um, I'm going to say no, and here's why. Because, again, I was designing both of them. Okay simultaneously because they were designed simultaneously the pieces in the book that are gamey if you will mm -hmm. you know like you know doing missions that kind of thing just comes naturally as part of the story that i'm telling so you know there's a there's a place in the book um 
you know, if I was if I was purely being edited by somebody at Random House and they wanted this, they were like, dude, 650 pages is a long book. Let's cut some of this out. There would be a particular part that they probably would have suggested. And this but it's there both because it progresses the characters, but it also really explores the world. So there's a lot of this world building. Mm -hmm. So what happens is um, guilds are very important in this game. Um, and there's all kinds of different guilds, but it just so happens that the, the changers are all, all almost all, well, that comes in another book, but let's just say for now, they're all chaotic of some type, you know, in terms of alignment. So there's this notion of chaos and law. And that's been explored in, in all kinds of fantasy series, you know, throughout history. Uh, Michael Moorcock, Elric of Melnabone and the whole, that whole universe, and of course Dungeons and Dragons. Um, but so there are these guilds that identify to, any, to, to a particular type of, of alignment. And these guilds are very important to you. And one of the guilds that's, that's quite fascinating, the two guilds that you join as these early players sound really boring and stupid on the surface. They just sound like, I, why would I want to have anything to do with that? One of them is the Lamplighters Guild, which is just what it sounds like. That's the group of people who normally go around maintaining the lanterns, the streetlights in a city. And of course they supply wood and oil, etc. And you think, well, that's just really boring. The other one, but it's not. <laughs> and of course, one of the things is those guilds also have their secret rituals, which grant them powers. So like when you join the Lamplighters Guild, you end up being able to do some pretty amazing, eventually incredibly potent pyrokinesis. So, you know, you think of this very boring thing, and yet you come away with the power to literally mold and shape fire into structures if you want you can do art with it um the other guild though that's really boring is called the international guild of bureaucrats the igb sounds like the most boring thing on the planet sort of but you can start to think well yeah but what do bureaucrats do they do get involved in a lot of of intrigue and of course they're kind of the base from which spies emerge so espionage etc so the international guild of bureaucrats you know their their missions sometimes they do seem kind of boring but this one isn't so this one you have to get arrested and then get sentenced to go into the high security prison in the mig the largest city in the world and the high security prison Basically, what they do is there's an anti-magic shell surrounding it, but they don't take anything from you. You, you know, when you pass through that area, you're, you know, relieved of all magical and potency, etc. But then when you're actually in the in the main area, it's prisoner run, so it's its mm. own environment. <laughs> it's literally it's a role-playing world inside a world. That's why I 
put it into the book. So it has its own little story. It has its own beginning, middle, and end. And it's the International Guild of Bureaucrats that sends you this mission. Because why you have to go in there is because one of the higher level bureaucrats, you know, a duke or something, um, his son has been arrested and put in there. And he's not going to be able to get out. Uh, and he needs support. Uh, and so you have to go in and give him these items that will help him to survive. Uh, and then you have a, a way to be, have your exit engineered as well. And so this is a story within a story. As I said, a editor at Random House would have told me, cut that out because it doesn't progress technically the overarching story of the whole book. And that's true. It doesn't. But it does teach you stuff about the characters. And it, of course, exposes you to the depth of this world, to understanding the nature of why and, and why magic is the way that it is and how you could just, you know, contain all of these super powerful beings in this place and just let them run themselves. Um, so, yeah, it's um, that kind of shows you how I was working hand in hand. Um, there's another one. I'll, I'll also tell you this one. So one of the most unique things about the gameplay, and it is discussed in the book as well, but it's again, it's not called a gameplay element in the book, but it's that you can play concurrent classes. So your primary class is going back to the old school RPGs. You know, you're a mage, you're a cleric, you're a fighter, you're a thief. You know, and there's some variance on that, of course, but primarily that's what your primary class is. You can be, join any number of concurrent classes. And for each particular mission, depending, and it'll show you this in the game, what concurrent classes this mission supports, You'll see, like, oh, if I do this mission, I, of course, not only gain experience points in my thief class, but I also, and here's the fun part, so this is just one of the concurrent classes, pirate. <laughs> okay? So you can be a mage pirate. You can be a, a cleric pirate, etc. So, and where that comes in is that's this whole part of the book that the characters are indeed going across a fairly large space of water and they're they're doing this as part of the story as part of the overarching story however on that they get forcibly enrolled into the pirate concurrent class they get attacked by pirates on the sea they get their boat taken over and then they get brought to this secret cove called dead man's cove and in Dead Man's Cove, theoretically, everybody on the ship is meant to have died. They will just, you know, everybody will just be told, well, that ship was lost at sea. You know, it never arrived to port. So, sorry. However, you're not dead. You are in a pirate cove where they train you to become a, a merchant marine slash a pirate slash uh, 
Oh, so I'm trying, that's slipping my mind now what they use. Ah, privateer. What they used to call, you know, a licensed pirate was called a privateer. So there were plenty of actual pirates that we even know of historically who were basically, they were pirates, but a particular government paid them. Therefore, they weren't pirates. They were privateers. So, yeah, you, you become a privateer. And you, you're there anyway. You have to learn the skills that they're teaching you. So they teach you seamanship and they teach you, you know, uh, foil sword fighting. And, you know, you're a mage and you've got this foil and you're, you're fighting a guy and you're like, wow, this is cool. So, um, so that I tell that whole story of how they're captured, how they go to Dead Man's Cove, how they figure out how to escape Dead Man's Cove. But nonetheless, how now that they are pirates, they continue and they get <laughs> on, the, on the way back. They get tons of experience points in their concurrent pirate class because they they find a, you know a ship that's uh, going with you know some other trade galleons and they become employed as as shipboard privateers and so they're earning and they you know they fight pirates. So during that whole bit. You, you know, you're in, uh, um, uh, what was the, uh, black flag, right? That was the, uh, Assassin's Creed where you, you became a pirate, right? So during this whole segment of the game, there you are, you, you can be a pirate. And, um, so you get to pick these concurrent classes also. And like ones like that, if you just get shoved into it, you don't have to keep it, you know, you can, but you'll always have it. So if you end up being, you know, a quartermaster pirate. You'll be a quartermaster pirate forever. You know, so you, you'll end up being whatever, you know, level 99, and you still be ha- say, well, I still board a ship anytime I want, and I'm still a quartermaster pirate. Mm-hmm. And as you said, Matt, that the concurrent classes are separate from kind of like your main class, right? Like mage, warrior, that's that correct. kind of thing. Okay. That's, yes, that's correct. So, yeah, you get to explore all kinds of fun things. You can become like a samurai warrior. You can uh, join. Um, it's, you know, it's effectively it's the Knights of the Round Table, but it's actually the, uh, um, you know, I think it's like the, the Knights of the White Table. Um, and so, yeah, you can be a, you can be a mage who happens to be a Knight of the White Table. All right. Now, uh, one thing that we didn't, uh, I don't think we touched on yet, but I do want to clarify for people listening, is that Imperium Omni is aimed, right now, is it aimed exclusively for mobile, or will you be bringing it to other platforms? No, actually, in that, yeah, that's one of the things, when you when you gave it the title, I didn't interrupt you, because it's true, it's, it's absolutely built for mobile, but the first platform it'll be introduced on is the PC. Okay. So it's PC first, but then what we're doing is we're taking Google Flutter, and Google Flutter allows simultaneous development okay. for iOS and Android. All right. All right, so that is good here. That actually takes me to another question for you. With Imperium Omni and kind of translating it or developing at the same time for PC and mobile, whenever we talk about games that go over this cross-platform development, usually there are some specific considerations or challenges that have to be made just due to the scope of the platforms. Are there any aspects to Imperium Omni that would be different for a mobile player versus a PC or vice versa? Well, I'm 
I'm yeah, I'm going to say I'm sure there will be some, but that's also one of the one of the powers firstly of using the unreal engine, but secondly of you as the base, but secondly of using the um the the nature of the retro PC, you know, the retro game. Mm-hmm. Because it's retro, it really I mean, I've played several um you know, full 3D uh, games uh, on Android. I, I'm an Android guy, but um, and I, they're amazing on my phone. I mean, they're I'm like, wow, you know, that's that's a smaller screen. But that's pretty much as nice as it would be on my PC. So that's there, but definitely that whole map-based interface, and that a lot of it is is turn-based and and that type of strategy really lends itself to the phone. Mm-hmm. So we'll be able to do. Um, I really think we'll be able to do basically everything we're doing in one in the other. Good. Now, uh, with that as a quick time check, we are approaching an hour into our chat. So I figure um, let's move on in a few minutes. We'll talk a little bit more about the Kickstarter plans, and then we'll begin to wrap things up. So uh, with that said, again, uh, for people listening to us, we, we're recording this again in December with the plans for the Kickstarter in mid-January. So um, there's still a lot to talk about in terms of the gameplay. And we can certainly, if you're free, Matt, we can certainly have you back on for either another recording or a live cast in the coming months. Sure, I'd be happy to. So uh, with that said, with regards to Imperium Omni from a gameplay perspective, are there any aspects we haven't touched on that you'd like to bring up now before we move on? Well, let's see. Um, one of the keys, so the, the main elements, of course, that I've discussed are that it's, that it's uh, you know, got these, these concurrent classes and whatnot, but I haven't gone deeply into the serialized nature of it. So serialized content right now, if you look at Netflix, for instance. Mm-hmm. So Netflix had in 2018 released 700 new series. They only released 80 movies. Basically, almost all games right now, even if they're numbered 1, 2, 3, and 4, whatever, Fallout 1, Fallout 2, Fallout 3, etc., they are standalones. Yep. They don't actually... I mean, they share a world, and they certainly have a commonality. And sometimes, of course, you'll even get some characters, potentially, from one that aren't really imported, but that kind of come into another. But so every game that exists, more or less, is standalone. Imperium Omni is totally different that way. It's serialized. And that's, that means a couple of things. One, we're talking about the whole quadrilogy idea. Mm-hmm. So that Imperium Omni 1, 2, 3, and 4 aren't just 1, 2, 3, and 4. You maintain the same characters, the same story. Everything is the same. You're going back to it. Just like uh, Friends Season 2, <laughs> when you came back to Friends Season 3, there was still, you know... Rachel and and, uh, and Phoebe and everybody. So, and more so, again, since this is a dramatic telling, there is this overarching story, and it's all still the same. Mm-hmm. So that's one real main aspect. And that furthermore, each of these books is released in pieces. 
So each of them is released as a serial. So, well, for instance, the part that we're doing the Kickstarter campaign is just the prelude of the book. So the prelude is about 110 pages of that 600-page book. So it'll actually be released in six sections. Okay. Now, each section has multiple chapters, and those aren't released as separate things, but each of the sections are. So I figure that there will be between 24 and 36 separate episodic releases that continue to move the game forward. Mm. So, yeah, so uh, that's very unique. Okay. And uh, I'm going to assume I know the answer to this, but just to clarify, with regards to the player's character as they develop it over the course of the various games or various sections, that you're obviously going to allow, like, character crossover, character carryover from one game to the next. Yes, absolutely. You'll have pure carryover. If you have played the previous versions of the game, so you literally will be taking your actual data-based character and importing them into this next edition of the game. Mm-hmm. Now, but what about the people who didn't play the first one? Let's say, you know, okay, this game gets caught on. It's huge. It's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's uh, whatever. It's, uh, you know, it's Fallout big. Um, but there have been people who join in the General's Edition. Well, we're not going to start them from a standpoint of story and play. If they're not going to go back and start at the beginning, we welcome them to start it in the General's Edition. But then they're going to get, effectively, they'll get the character they customize will be customized to be equal to mm-hmm. that character that would have been otherwise imported. Okay. And it's very tricky, I think, when we talk about games being serialized versus those that aren't, because you always run into that challenge of if the game doesn't do well, or as you said, if let's say it's a five to ten game franchise and people can't play or they don't find like the first ones, they will eventually be stuck or stuck with regards to that. Now, one advantage, of course, today with games being digital is that you're never going to have to worry about, you know, game number two being completely unavailable for someone to ever buy. Correct, correct. No, that's, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the game once produced, anything that's produced will be there forever. And furthermore, each of these segments has their own beginning and middle and end. So they, I mean, they're a miniature of course, to get the full book, obviously, you'd have to get all six and play all six of the series. But still, even the prelude, especially we did it in the prelude. And this is another thing that's like, this is where thinking in game terms also played directly into the novel. Because the prelude literally has a beginning, middle, and an end. Now, it introduces the characters, it introduces the overarching story, it does all of that. So, a, a random house editor wouldn't have told me to, to, to cut it out, but it's self-contained. So, like, if you go back to, and it, this happens in a lot of, especially MMO RPGs, where you, you're kind of, you start out in an area that is very specifically cordoned off, if you will, from the greater universe so that you can play in a kind of a controlled space. 
that's basically what the prelude is. Mm -hmm. The prelude is a controlled space that, uh, that, that your goal is to get out of the controlled space, if you will. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) so yeah, there's, there's that. Okay. And uh, like we said, when it comes to RPG design, we could uh, sit here and talk for hours on end. There's definitely a lot here. And it sounds like there's definitely a lot in terms of Imperium Omni's general design and gameplay loop. So I guess um, one other question that I have, and then we'll move on talking a little bit more about what the Kickstarter plans are, is so uh, with the game itself... As we said, you're planning on doing this as a set of four different titles. In terms of, I guess, from like a growth or development point of view, do you envision the game having like additional DLC or microtransactions or things along those lines? Or will each game be generally self-contained in that regard? I'm once again, I'm going to not, I'm going to say both. Okay. And I'll tell you why. Because just like I gave you that example, right, of the, um, of the whole prison adventure, Mm -hmm. that type of thing can be introduced as DLC since the random house editor would have cut it out anyway. Um, they're certainly not going to object in a game. If I introduce, you know, 20 of those and say, all right, here's 20 mini stories that are all part of the world. They all help you and one way or another, but they're effectively they're at least tangential to the grand story. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that some wouldn't directly impact the grand story. It just means that clearly they're not in the novel. So that's why I would say both. Effectively, you can read the novel and say that's the content that is guaranteed to be effectively part of the game. There will be content in okay. addition to that. All right, gotcha. So, uh, I think with that said, let's move on and talk a little bit more about the Kickstarter plans, and then we'll wrap things up for tonight. So, sure. uh, like we said, at the time of this recording, the Kickstarter has not started yet. For people listening to us right now, what are kind of your current plans for getting the Kickstarter up for Imperium Omni? Well, we're doing a whole, whole bunch of things, you know, right now. Um, we're getting a really sizable amount of press coverage already. So there's going to be a very high level of awareness. One of the things is that um, Kickstarter video games have historically been the most successful campaigns in Kickstarter history. They have very frequently greatly exceeded their target goals. And in some cases, of course, Pillars of Eternity, for instance, but they've gone to a million, two million, mm-hmm. four million dollars. So, because video games can generate millions of dollars on Kickstarter because of the, you know, what you're getting is really amazing. You're getting, you're, firstly, of course, you're helping to bring to life something that we hope, obviously, people become as passionate about as I am. But the stuff you get in the game loads of it is entirely exclusive you there are things that you absolutely cannot get the day that kickstarter campaign ends now it's not going to mean that the people who participate in the kickstarter campaign would be you know totally out of here you don't get um you know 
you don't uh, get your first level character to have a plus five Vorpal sword just because you wear a Kickstarter. <laughs> but there are exclusives that are very much like that. And there's, you know, all kinds of fun exclusive things like, um, and depending on the levels, but you get um, treasure maps. So there's a, several treasure maps that are available only to the Kickstarter people. And that means that not only is the map not available, but typically the treasure isn't either. But then you also get exclusive items. The exclusive items aren't available. Otherwise, you'll get trade routes. So you'll actually get the ownership of an exclusive trade route that was only available to somebody who was involved in the funding. And that a trade route in the game is something that just, it earns you money, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, your character... Money is very important in this world. You really, 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 really want to be rich. And in a lot of games, you know, you hit a point where gold becomes meaningless mm-hmm. uh, because you've got so much of it. It's physically impossible to do that in this game. There's never, ever a point where you'd have too much because there's always something <laughs> more. So you get all this unique stuff. So that's one of the key key things about the kickstarter campaign is that we're shooting for stretch goals big stretch goals stretch goals on top of stretch goals on top of stretch goals and then we're doing a great deal of stuff to promote the game like this really getting people to understand out front what the game is what it's about mm-hmm now, uh, with regard to the actual Kickstarter development itself, one question I always like to ask developers when they come on is, how long have you spent uh, planning and preparing the Kickstarter? Well, that's quite a, quite a long time, technically, <laughs> because uh, it was planned, I mean, just as the idea, it was planned when I began writing the novel. Okay. Um, so that's, you know, three odd years ago. But, you know, probably in earnest... Um, it's been at least six months, maybe longer. And then of course, as we're getting closer and closer to the actual launch date, you know, now we're starting to go out and get press, etc. So, all right. Now, uh, with regards to the Kickstarter in terms of, uh, what is your funding? I think you may have mentioned this earlier, but for people listening to us now, uh, if you could clarify, the funding for the Kickstarter, is this going to be for, like, the first game? Is it going to be for, like, two or three games? Like, what are you aiming for? It's just the prelude. Okay. Because we're only asking. I mean, so this is why the goal is set so comparatively low and why this retro style of map-based gaming plays into it. It's just $25,000. So, you know, the actual coding, obviously is not that tremendously complex. Conveniently, I am also a coder, (laughs) amongst the many other things that I am. Um, My whole background, you know, has been in IT. So, like I said, I programmed my first game myself when I was 16. So, you know, I'm going to be doing a fair amount of the work myself, but, you know, we'll definitely need other people. But that's why when we keep the interface the way that we have it, to go back to this whole retro style that's why we can keep the cost down but that's also why we're shooting for you know quintuple or dick tuple uh uh stretch goals you know we're we would we'd like to hit seven figures if we could but we certainly would love to hit six figures okay 
And yeah, it's going to be very interesting about that in terms of designing Kickstarter. As you said, Matt, like a few years ago, like the video game Kickstarter model was definitely one of the most successful ones out there. But we have seen some decline in that sense, with a lot of consumers getting kind of burnt out on Kickstarters and especially for like long-term game development ones. Well, like, yeah, I think that's true because, of course, uh, quite often when something is unique, which, you know, Kickstarter and video game was unique when it started. and But that wasn't, as you said, that wasn't actually that long ago. Um, what One of the cool things that's different about Imperium Omni is that, for one thing, the novel is already there. Quite frequently, when you'd look at a campaign like this, that would be one of the things that would be being built from the money, right? Is, you know... Uh, we'll release the novel in, you know, 12 months, or we'll release the novel in 24 months. The novel's already there. Not only that, for any pledge whatsoever, even a dollar, we're going to give people, and this is completely unique, right away, not when the campaign is finished, right away we'll give people access to download the digital ebook right away. Mm -hmm. So even for just a buck, you get a 650-page uh, ebook version of the novel just right there. Mm -hmm. So that is also unique. That that's something that you can take away from a Kickstarter campaign. You don't have to wait a year and a half to two years to get anything from it. This one, you're going to actually get something immediately. Mm. Interesting. And in terms of, I guess, the scope or development, if the Kickstarter does succeed, uh, what kind of timetable or is there any like tentative timetable for when the uh, prequel will be available? Yes, that's going to be 18 to 24 months. So it's basically going to be, since it's going to go off in January, the release mm -hmm. date that we're going to post on Kickstarter is the end of 2020. Okay. And correct me if I'm wrong. So if the game, if the Kickstarter succeeds, you have the prequel that's developed. And then from the prequel, do you go straight into developing game number one and then game number two? Or, or are things kind of being developed, as you said, like like roughly around like the same time of each other? Well, the, the first part of the stretch goals are going to actually be to enhance the prelude itself. Okay. So the the next part of the stretch goals is to get you to go from the the valley, which is where you are. So the prelude all takes place in a place called Pendlehaven Valley, and that's effectively the title of the prelude is Pendlehaven Valley. So the prelude is in Pendlehaven Valley. So your next stretch goal is to move you out of Pendlehaven Valley and back to the first main city that you were that that's where you your character, you went to the Hawksmoor Academy of Exploring. Mm -hmm. So you actually went to an Explorer's Academy to basically learn how to be an Explorer. And you'll go to Marchland Fields, and that's in the, the county, district, or region, if you will, of Marchland. And so that will expand the game so that you now have Marchland, which is the next section of the book. Then the next section is a much bigger one because you move east into the biggest city in the entire world. And it's got tons of unique features, and that's where that whole prison story takes place as well. And that's called Sashire. That's also where the Empress lives, 
And that's, she's empress of the Sashire Empire. Okay. Now, here's uh, one thing I'm kind of curious about, and this kind of goes back to talking about the gameplay from the last section. With the plans of developing this as a uh, quadrilogy, do you envision, like, <coughs> excuse me, the gameplay kind of changing from game one to game four? Or in terms of like the core gameplay loop, will it remain consistent across the various games? Every one of the, uh, yep. So let me, once again, I, I'm answering many questions by saying <laughs> both. Um, mm-hmm. So every edition adds mm-hmm. to the previous edition. Okay. Basically, we don't subtract anything. But like, for instance, this is, this is my best example. In the general's edition of both the book and the game, for that matter, but certainly in the game, there's a whole new thing added about mass army attack, right? You're going to be a general. At some point, you're going to be moving large amounts of troops around. You're going to be actually implementing wartime military strategy. So there are whole parts of the game that get added to support that when you get the general's edition. They're totally unnecessary in the captain's edition. So, of course, it's never never used a reference but in that same way of course you can imagine when you become king there are some things that you can do that you couldn't even do as a general and then there, when you become an emperor well there's things that you could do that you couldn't even do as a king so um yeah i mean that's that's really what it is because uh like for instance in the in the king's edition again that's the the title you get of your rank when you end the book you will have been crowned king or queen of a particular kingdom during the book you actually get promoted to royalty so at the very beginning of the book you you basically start the next edition at the rank you were at the end of the previous one right mm-hmm. so at the beginning of the king's edition book and game you start as a general, but then you're promoted to royalty. So you'll become an earl, and then you'll become a count, and then you'll become a duke, and then you'll become an archduke. You know, So each of these things has different elements that do add to the game, but nothing is subtracted. Okay. And now, here is a question that I'm sure some people are probably think about right now. In terms of like the grand scope for Imperium Omni, like... Do you even have an idea of like how long it will take you to finish all four games at this point? Sure. Well, I mean, yeah, we have we have the idea because we're using this retro approach and and we're using an already very progressive and successful engine Unreal 4. We'll be able to use the structure for all of okay. the games. So that means we'll have less development time. We're not going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know, for each game where we go, okay, now we're, you know, we're just starting over and it's all, you know, got to redevelop from the ground up. No, so we get to keep adding and adding. So as an additive process, that's what gives us a shorter cycle. So we're saying roughly 18 months between editions. And that puts the release of the last edition out at around four, four and a half, five years of the fourth edition. So you have two years for the first 
and then calendar year, basically 1.5 calendar years or less on each of the successive books. So in theory, all five could come out within five years. Okay, great. I think we'll begin to wrap things up. And I guess a few uh, final questions for you regarding the Kickstarter and just the game in general. I guess the first one is, as you said, you have a timetable set for Imperium Omni if the Kickstarter succeeds. In terms of the platforms, I'm assuming we're going to see like the general run, you know, Steam, uh, GOG, mobile, uh, stuff like that. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Now, I guess with regards to uh, developing the franchise, as you said, uh, you released the first book, I think you said about two years ago, and you're currently working on book number two. I'm assuming, Correct. will there be a goal, or I'm sorry, rewards related to people getting copies of the book as they're finished? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that'll be one of the things that basically we include is that, you know, you get, you know, some some further edge. But what what we do is we so you'll get like a, a pre-release copy of that sort of mm-hmm. thing. But of course, the the campaigns will keep going on. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll we'll be doing a uh, Imperium Omni Generals edition campaign, I'm sure. Um, so that'll have a, a similar flow to it mm-hmm. that you know the book will already be available uh, it'll already be finished it'll already be on amazon people will already be buying it and then you as a participant will get it uh, yourself free all right and it definitely sounds like you've thought about this for a very long time in terms of planning out uh, the scope of the book the scope of the game and even the kick and of course the kickstarter itself and I think that's always a very wise strategy. When we see people who do succeed through Kickstarter, is that you really do need to think about all these avenues. It's not just about what you're doing before the Kickstarter or during it, but you know, what are your plans post-Kickstarter as well? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and of course, with the modern content marketplace, um, you know, I'd, I'd love to get this in Netflix. Um, shit. They're, they're, they're buying anything. <laughs> so uh, I should just be able to phone them up and say, hey, by the way, mm-hmm. <laughs> I have a very successful uh, book mm-hmm. and video game franchise that already exists. <laughs> it's already making money. It's already got people who like it. You need to, you know, make the next Game of Thrones in the form of Imperium Omni. And I need, well, I just wrote my first book on game design a few months ago. I mean, I should get in touch with them, although I only have any story to tell with that one. (laughs) Well, yeah, you do need some type of entertainment content for them, unfortunately. So, yeah, (laughs) a nonfiction book, you, you need to jazz that up a little. All right. Well, uh, Matt, like I said, we could sit here and chat for hours on end, but I'm sure your voice is getting tired. My voice is starting to go myself, and we may just have two guys just like raspily talking if we keep going. <laughs> sure. So um, sure. we'll begin. To, we'll wrap things up here for tonight. But like I said, it was definitely great talking with you. This sounds like a very ambitious idea, especially with combining, again, adapting a novel to a game, but essentially you're doing it at the same time. And as I said a few seconds ago, it definitely sounds like you you have a plan for this. Like, this is not going to be something that you're going to finish and then, you know, you're done. Like, you've got quite a long time of development and plans that you're going through. Yeah, absolutely. There's even, 
I mean, it's literally just a very, very distant. <laughs> but there is a book five that's out there. Oh. I mean, in my <laughs> mind, there's still there's still a way. But and that's basically if you know if it's as popular as I want it to mm-hmm. be, and as many people enjoy it, they're gonna want to visit that world again. Oh. And they're going to want to visit their characters again. And so, yes, I have, it'll be a different story, but I have a way uh, to <laughs> tell it so that uh, it you still would be able to import your emperor nice. into the next book. <laughs> nice. All right. But I think with that, we will say goodnight for now. Again, for people listening to us, we are recording this before the Kickstarter, so this should be going up right around that time. So, Matt, if I don't talk to you during the week of Kickstarter, uh, the Kickstarter campaign, definitely the best of luck with it. Thank you very much uh, to you too, Josh. Not a problem. So uh, before I go through my little end of podcast speech, for people listening who want to follow you or the game, do you have any social media or websites you would like to plug now? Yes. You can always go to ImperiumOmni.com. That's the easiest way to do it. And on ImperiumOmni.com, you'll see all of my contact information there. All right. So, uh, with that said, we are going to end things here. For people listening, thank you so much for tuning in. If you'd like to follow me and what I do, you can, of course, check out my Twitter, twitter.com slash Bicer. If you'd like to be a future podcast guest for either a live or recording, uh, check out Submissions Wanted on the front page. We're even looking for guest posts as well. And... Be sure to check out our Discord channel where we discuss or we just chat about game design. And, of course, check out the YouTube channel for daily videos and discussions on game design there. But I think with that, we will end things for tonight. So again, Matt, uh, it was great hanging out with you this evening. Best of luck with the Kickstarter, and I'm sure we'll talk again hopefully in the coming months. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks, Josh. I've enjoyed it all very much. Not a problem. So, for everybody listening, once again, thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of the Perceptive Podcast. Tune in next time for another discussion about the art and craft of game design. But until then, have a great night.